Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Sir Ranulph Fiennes OBE describes today's guest Jordan Wiley as a determined, fearless adventure and an inspiring man. A former soldier, best-selling author, extreme adventurer and one of the stars of the BAFTA-nominated and award-winning TV shows Hunted and Celebrity Hunted, his expeditions have raised more than one million for charity. He's the first person to row solo and unsupported across the world's most dangerous stretch of water. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro barefoot, ran across Iraq, Somalia and Afghanistan, holds world records for running the deepest underground marathon at a thousand metres below the surface in a mine and stand up paddleboarding for further and longer at sea than anyone, completing 149 days and 2,377 kilometres. What's more, he's seen 10 years active service in the British Army in both Northern Ireland and Iraq, battled severe depression, chronic anxiety and epilepsy, and still finds time to campaign tirelessly to remove the stigma from mental illness. A trustee and patron of many charities, he is the National Ambassador for the United Kingdom's Army Cadet Force, through which he inspires countless young people. So what's the story of the man who lives by the mantra, be the difference that makes a difference? Without further ado, let's get into it. Jordan Wiley, good morning. Good morning, sir. Good, welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you on as my guest. And as always with uh, with conversation on astrology, we, the focus is really around the story behind the story. So I want to find out today, what's the story behind the man that for whom be the difference that makes a difference is the mantra. But before we come on to what that means and 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 how you're making that happen. I'm interested to start with with the early days. So tell me, where did you grow up and, and what was childhood like for you? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for, for having me on the show. Always uh, a pleasure and an honour uh, to talk to interesting people as well. Um, so it's it, my journey really started off in in Blackpool, uh, which is is my hometown, as you may be able to tell from that dodgy northern twang that I have. <laughs> um, but yeah, Blackpool, Lancashire is is home for me, although it's Hampshire in the southwest of England these days where I'm, I'm an honorary southerner, but don't tell my, my family that. <laughs> I, I grew up on a council estate, quite a rough area in Lancashire. But, you know, whatever we, we sort of lacked, I guess, materially, I, I was given in love from from an awesome family. And life for me was... You know, I wasn't the best at school to be to be completely honest not something that I'm proud of but I was I was pretty tragic at school I, I left school with very little in terms of, of academic qualifications I had a few sort of scrapes with the law if I'm honest at an early age as well at 14 15 for getting up to no good I get nothing nothing serious well well it's serious because it, it it gave me a criminal record but not you know not serious crime or anything like that but the usual breach of the peace and being a nuisance to the locals and and what have you and I you know life Life for me was all about football and sport as a, as a teenager. That's what really drove me. You know, I, I lived for playing football on the weekends and going to training in the week. And in between that and school, it was it was trying to stay out of trouble, which I wasn't that good at, if I'm honest. And and that was really really most of my youth. I think 
you know, growing up in a place like Blackpool as well, obviously it's a, it's a seaside tourist resort. So, you know, we would have all this influx of people come all year round to see, you know, whether it was the beaches, the promenade or the illumination. So a lot of the, the sort of opportunities that I would come across often related to that. So, you know, some of the first jobs I had were working on the theme park at the Pleasure Beach you know, on the sort of basketball stall where where they could win a teddy or, or or whatever, and I was telling someone the other day actually about this and how 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 sort of ruthless it was. I remember that my boss on this particular basketball store, that the deal was that if I ever had to give a teddy away, it came out of my wages. You know, that's how, that's how brutal it was, <laughs> uh, which which was quite funny on reflection, but. You know, I, I worked on the illuminations, selling things like light-up yo-yos, you know, um, glow sticks. And I, I remember 14, 15 years old, I was out till very late on Friday nights, you know, trying to trying to sort of wheeling and dealing as a youngster. And that was that was how, how life is still in Blackpool today for people I know growing up. You know, you I don't think, perhaps not the best academically, but what we what I think and look back and think we were really good at was was being streetwise, you know, learning about people and about what motivates people, uh, how people work, how people respond to different situations. And I think, I think that's something that is often lacking in society today, that ability to, 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 to be streetwise and to, you know, and to grow those sort of people skills that are perhaps not recognized in, in academia, school or education, but, but just about learning about life in general. And I, I, I think that those early days, the more I think about it, and it was only after speaking to you and touching on them, you know, pre-podcast last week that I started to think about them, actually. And I think that those early days as a youngster in Blackpool probably put me in very good stead for for the journey as I travelled around the world doing these different adventures, meeting you know new people, embracing new cultures. I think there was a lot to be said for those days that I didn't think much of at the time, but I think they were really important actually growing up. I can imagine that you learn some, uh, I know from my own experiences, the people skills you acquire as a consequence of the of, of the uh, of the work experience that you're describing it can be invaluable. But yet, to your point, you, I don't know that necessarily as a 15, 16 year old, you see it in quite that way. It's just a, it's a way of earning a few quid and putting some money in your pocket, right? But but actually, it's it's a great foundation. And and so t- tell me, you leave school at 16 and, and straight into the British Army, as I understood it. What was the... Uh, what was the story behind it? What was the reasoning behind it? The thinking behind it? I guess what was the appeal of the army from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think you know if the if the truth be told, I was you know I, I left school as I say with very little in terms of academic qualification. So some of my friends may have been going on to sixth form and university and things like that eventually, but I I was never going to get those opportunities because I you know I didn't apply myself as a youngster in 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 the school setting for me it was as i say the weekends it was about playing football and sport and i think it was only sport that really got me through school i think it was being an half decent footballer you know athletics cricket basketball because i could you know, sort of turn my hand to most sports and 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 be quite competent at those you know as a cap sports captain for many of the teams that was what really got me through school so i think it's a bit like the army in that respect because I remember in the army I was never a prolific soldier I was never a super soldier I was never going to be in the SAS or anything like that but I was good at sport and I played football for the army for many years and it's sort of it's sort of a I don't want to say a free ticket to to to, to sort of get by but people respect that that you know you bring something to the table um, and you know you 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 get on with it and they and and it sort of gives you a bit of a pass I, I guess in some areas and that was i think the school and the army were quite similar in that respect you you excel at something and they support you regardless of of what you don't bring to the table perhaps in other areas 
But for me, it was it was lack of opportunity. If I stayed in Blackpool, you know, I saw lots of friends go off the rails, and you know, I, I know friends now who are still in prison for crimes, you know, relating to drugs, firearms offences, you know, some some quite ser- ser- very serious crimes in some cases. And these were some of these were people who were very good friends of mine at school, you know, who who just got stuck in the rut. And I think, you know, when you're in that cycle. It's a slippery slope if you don't get out of it quickly. You know, you, you know, you get involved in things like drugs, and it leads to addiction, which leads to crime, and it's not a pretty sight. And that is that is quite common, not just in Blackpool, of course, but in in lots of areas around around the country and the world. And it, for me, I didn't want to go down that route. I knew I needed more than that in my life, and but I could easily see on reflection how I could have easily been another, you know, statistic in in that respect um, if I didn't join the army. Because when I joined the army at sixteen, I was still you know, I was I, I was still that I guess a, a cocky, naughty little teenager who thought he knew better than everyone else. Which, which obviously, when you join a, an, an establishment like the, the the British Army, the military, you have to grow up very quickly because you know within within months, years, you're going to be on the front line fighting for your country where lives depend on it. So, the army is very good, I think, at, and the military as a whole of turning you know sort of young people into into you know people with values, with substance, with 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 a purpose in life. And, and I think that's, you know, something that's quite special about the, the the military family. From your experience, how did they achieve that? How do they go? How did that transition from, you know, your words, sort of cocky, cocky teenage kid who thought he knew better to becoming someone with all of the values to which you describe very, very consistently talked about, read about, portrayed, and I think would be familiar to many, but what was the journey for you? For me, I think it's I think what the army or the military as a whole does, what, what whichever sort of arm of the military you join, I think it it, it, it strips you down uh, to, to the start, you know, and it sort of rebuilds you up, you know. It it accepts and understands that everyone's coming from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different experiences, but you know, in, in that sort of day one, week one in training, you know, that it's it's very much emphasised that we're all the same now. You know, we're all gonna and you all wear the same uniform. You know, you wear your beret. You all have to apply the same rules and regulations. And I, I guess there's there's probably commonalities with things like the prison. Uh, you know, and being in jail as well to to a certain extent because that's how they rehabilitate. Uh, you know, offenders and things. But I think the army is very good at installing values in people from a young age. You know, things like courage, respect, uh, integrity, loyalty, discipline selfless commitment and also it allows you to meet people from different walks of life you know if you're a teenager in your hometown the likelihood is you probably unless it was for a summer holiday with the family you probably haven't been very far from that hometown and when you're 16 years old 17 18 and you've you know you're traveling to places like the US Australia Canada Poland you sort of accumulate these experiences and skills very quickly and very early and it's almost like whether you like it or not you have to change because you're not going to fit into this system if you don't start living by these values and rules. And I think what, what's really good is they're not just sort of throwaway terms like courage, respect, integrity. You know, you you live and breathe those as part of of getting by. I think I think the team ethos and the teamwork factor is really big as well because, you know, that it's it's very much a focus early on in your career, especially in training, that, you know, you don't just let the team down, you're letting yourself down and everyone is punished as a result of that. So you you value the you know, the ethos of, of working together and collaborating for a common objective and a common goal. And and I always think that the best teams in the world aren't necessarily built on the best people, but they are built on people who are the most committed to each other. And I think that's what the military thrives on. And we, you know, you often hear in things like movies and books and and, and on the, the TV about the, the, the band of brothers, 
you know, and I don't mean it in a sexist way. It's a, a coining phrase of of anyone in the military, but it's you know, it's it's quite strange, really, because you 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 end up living and and breathing and working alongside these incredible people that you've you've never met. Some come from similar backgrounds. Some come from very different backgrounds. Some I can remember in my unit we had. You know, we had people who were in the top 10 in line to the throne, some of the officers. We had people who were heirs to some of the biggest corporations in the world. But yet the military was a great leveler. You know, I was a council estate kid and these were coming from educated at Eton and Harrow and places. But we we come together as a leveler and we work together. And and actually that, that creates something quite special, you know, really interesting. What do you think you learned from that sort of experience? I think I learned that it, it, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, actually, people are just people that, are, you know, sometimes circumstances change, you know, how you're brought into this world, you know, perhaps you come from wealth, perhaps you come from different culture, but actually, people are all the same and very similar in, in not the same, but very similar in, in terms of most people are good people, and they, they, they want to bring something to the to the table, they want to have a purpose in life, they, they, they want to succeed, they want to be successful. But actually, I found that you also need to be exposed to opportunity to really bring out the best in you as an individual, as a person. And I think that's one of the challenges we see in society today, where lots of young people are stuck in these ruts and because they can't get out of them because they've never been exposed to any type of opportunity that says, actually, you know, this door's open. Why don't you go and have a look what's through it and see where it takes you? And I think also, you know, uh, dare I say that the world is full of a lot of uninspiring people as well, that adults, and I mean, I don't mean young people. I mean, there's a lot of uninspiring older people in the world that that give, gave up on their dreams many years ago, and they make a habit of convincing the next generation that you can't achieve things in life because, you know, because you didn't or I didn't. And I think that's quite common in society today. I meet lots of people who who spend most of their time you know, they troll people, they they have negative comments on social media, they'll tell you what you can't do, they'll tell you that that's not possible. And I, I, I sort of see them as like detractors, you know, always trying to pull you off off course and, and take you away from your goal or your objective or your dream. And, you know, I, I speak to young people about this a lot all the time, because, you know, these are the people that if they're if they're not willing to step up and they're not willing to step in the arena and, and put themselves out there, well, actually, they don't even deserve the time in your headspace. They shouldn't even have the right to have an opinion on whatever you're doing if they're not prepared to step up to the plate themselves. And, you know, we, we live in a world now that's full of this celebrity culture, which, again, is full of very uninspiring, famous people that, that are pushing out messages and, and, and posts and tweets and statuses that, that, that aren't good for society. But yet we, as a society, catapult them to fame overnight when we should be making... You know, the unsung heroes, the NHS workers, the, the you know, the firefighters, the police, the people who are going the extra mile every day for but not not for any any kudos or fame or pay, but because, you know, that's what they do. Um, and, and it's yeah, it's a bit of a, a gripe, I guess, of mine that, that that we catapult these, as I say, very uninspiring, famous people to, fa- you know, to, because with these this new generation of influencers. These people now we, we, we see of these, you know, celebrity fame, they they have more power, influence, authority than than actually mainstream politicians in some cases and business leaders and people who who we should be listening to perhaps in society. And it's it's dangerous for the next generation for me. And when I talk in schools sometimes or to cadets or young people, and I'll, I'll often say to them, what do you want to be when you're older? What do you want to do? And, you know, and it's quite horrifying because you will hear things like, I want to be a, an Instagram model. I want to be I want to be famous. You know, I want to be a celebrity. And, you know, and they don't want to be a celebrity because they want to be famous for, you know, for being the next 
person on the moon or they, they, they just want to be famous because it's being famous. You know, they've got no aspirations of a career path that's going to take them there. It's just, and, and this is a dangerous culture that I think we've created as a society. I, I probably digress there in the day. But no, I think, I think you make a really interesting point. It's straight, I'm reminded of something and I can't remember the specifics. So therefore quoting it is, is perhaps not great form, but as something I, I remember reading somewhere that it was kind of one of those um, in school posters on the wall, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, if I look back to when when I was at school, the typical thing would have been, you know, astronaut, doctor, nurse, fireman, policeman, soldier, the fly plane, whatever. But there would have been a thing that you would have attributed to as an ambition. And I, this particular article that I'd been reading had referenced the fact that of an age group that had been studied, and, I, and it was kids seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever it might have been, what do you want to be when you grow up? Famous. You know, was was the number one description. So, you know, whereas we would have given, even in my case, like football was my thing as a kid. I wanted to be a footballer. Those were the posters on my wall. But you know, that's okay. You could argue there's an element of wanting, you know, of, of fame that attributes and gives you that thought process. But there was a there was a journey. There was an understanding that that would take hard work and years to to achieve. Where we now have this kind of immediacy of expectation. Um, that you can, you know, your 15 minutes of fame and it can come in an instant. So yeah, I think, I think whilst you say you might have digressed, you make a really interesting point. If you if you go back to that 10 years of my right thinking of service in British, you, you saw active service in Northern Ireland and in Iraq, you'd have seen uh, some, I'm sure, some some horrific situations. But was that 10 years in, in of, of military service what you were expecting it to have been from the outset for you? Oh, absolutely not. I don't think. You know, when when I joined the army at, at 16 years old, and I sort of walked into that recruiting office in in Blackpool, I don't really know what I thought I was going to get. I, I think for me, the appeal was that you could travel and you could play sport and you could meet lots of interesting people. I I, I think traveling and meeting people are the two greatest gifts in life. I, I think you know to, to 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 meet people from all walks of life, different countries, backgrounds, cultures is. Is, is something very special, but also to go and visit incredible places, you know, that you, you've never, I guess that's that spirit of an adventure that, you know, just wanting to know what's out there, you know, bigger than than where we are now. And that's something that probably has never left me. But I certainly at 16 years old wasn't thinking about going to fight and pick up a gun and, you know, potentially take someone's life or lose my own life. Uh, that was probably the, the, the last thing, if I'm honest, on my mind. And I think going to... Iraq the first time. Northern Ireland, you know, with, with great respect, it was not the Northern Ireland of troubles, you know, 20 years earlier. I, I went when there was, you know, it was it was, it was was relatively peaceful, although there were still incidents going on and things, and you still had to have your, your wits about you. Uh, for me, it, you know, we were watching the news where Iraq was in, unfolding while we were on tour in Northern Ireland, and then we were thinking, we want to be in Iraq, you know. I, you sort of grow into the culture of being a soldier, and, you know, you go through all the training, the drills, you're firing weapons, you know, doing all your all your practicing and what have you. And then before you know it, you know, you, you've got this desire to want to do what, in theory, you've signed up for, you know, go and serve your country in a combat zone. And and I think every soldier has that desire. I don't think you ever, not, not certainly I didn't, I don't think everyone does, but you don't join for that reason necessarily. But that becomes who you are eventually because of everything you go through. But yeah, I, I, you know, going to Iraq was a real eye opener. The first tour of Iraq because we, I can remember being on the plane out there and we'd already lost, you know, we we took casualties and and lost lives just. And I was hearing it through the news reports and the and the the emails and and the information that was being fed back that the camp I was going to had, had just lost a few people and we were going straight into into that place. And oh, I, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't scared. You know, I was nervous. I was apprehensive. 
But at the same time, there was the adrenaline, the excitement of thinking, you know, this is what we we signed up for. We're going to serve our country. And I think all those experiences shape who you are today. You know, that the things that you see, the things that you've experienced, the good, the bad, the ugly. Certainly, I, I think certainly those experiences define and refine my values as a as a soldier who's now a civilian, you know, because it was all those 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 values that I talked about earlier that I learned that I still carry with me today. You know, I, I try and use them in society every day. And I do think they are, I say to young cadets who who try to, you know, we teach the same values too, that they're they're a game changer, they're a differentiator in society. If you can hold yourself accountable every day to a set of values that you live and breathe and stand by and have and have learned through life, I think that's very powerful in, in modern society. How did you find the you know, ten years of, of of service? How did you find the transition to to civilian life, if you could put it in those terms? You know that, that, that transition to CV Street. That you know, I, I'd imagine you've, you. I haven't been in the military, so I'm making assumptions. But you have a you have a clearly defined purpose, a clearly defined set of values that you collectively aspire to and live to. Uh, you have a very you know you, all of the things that we would understand that if we look through where we've come as a consequence of the pandemic, you know, as you look at trying how people, you know, we're encouraged to try and have a structure, have a routine, have a, have a purpose each day in order that you can, for example, mental health will come onto that in due course, but how you can manage an effectiveness through your day to get the best out of yourself. Some of that is, you've got to, you've got, absolutely, you've got to get out of bed and subscribe to it, but some of that is provided for you for want of a better word in the military it's an environment in which you know you're you're wrapped around not without its challenges i'm sure but it's it's an environment you go into civilian street and all of a sudden it's oh that's all it's the rug is pulled from under you if you like and it's all on you how did how do you how did you find that transition how did you make that transition um i found it very difficult and what was perhaps uh, quite interesting was i actually was a rejoiner to the army so i left the army for six months and then got back in and did another five years because I, I really struggled. I I left the army after my first tour of Iraq and I remember we'd, we'd lost, I'd lost a really good friend and been involved in some quite serious incidents where other lives were lost as well. And I remember it was a bit of a, I guess, in hindsight and on reflection, it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction because I remember, um, you know, within about two weeks of <clears throat> losing a colleague and a friend in an incident, I, I said, you know what, I've had enough. This isn't for me. I don't want to be. I don't want to be coming in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan for the next decade. You know, not knowing where this ends. And it was a, it was a bit of a knee jerk emotional reaction at the time, but it was a, one that I followed through with and ended up leaving the army after about five and a half six years. Came into civilian life, went back to Blackpool, and I, you know, within six months, I, I knew quite quickly within weeks that I'd made the wrong decision to leave the army because. With great respect to anyone, I was in a very low-paid minimum wage job back in Blackpool, and you know I couldn't even afford to put my food in my fridge and pay my my bills. And my mum was having to help me out, and I'd gone from sort of this this soldier who had served his country, you know, had medals on my chest to to, to show for it, and had all these values and worked with all these amazing, incredible, highly motivated people, to now being can't even pay your bills and you, you're working more than you've ever worked before in terms of hours and uh, you know and I, did, I didn't really have a life to be honest and it was it was quite a depressing period and I knew straight away that I, I wasn't going to last if I if I stayed here I needed to get back in uh, so yeah I ended up rejoining the army but when I rejoined the second time I joined with a very different mindset and mentality because I I always had a plan to leave again eventually but I knew that I would have to focus a lot on continued professional development because when I'd left the army the first time I was still a kid from Blackpool who had no qualifications just that I'd done a couple of tours of Iraq and Northern Ireland or whatever 
you know, and, and what you find actually is civilian life. I see it sometimes in soldiers today, uh, veterans, you, you sometimes see this victim mentality. And I had that victim mentality where I, I thought, do you know what? The world owes me a favor here. Blackpool owes me a favor. I've served my country. I'm coming back home now. Someone's going to give me a decent job at least. And that isn't how the world works. You know, you you are now back on the pile and you have to start at the bottom and work your way up again. And I, I learned that the hard way and by going through that journey. And what I knew when I got back in is I needed to really spend a lot of my spare time committing to educating myself. And I spent the next five years and I did a foundation degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. So then I hit the ground running when I left. And, you know, and a decade later, I've never looked back now because and I, I put a lot of that down to my my second stint in the army and, and my ability to, to knuckle down. And the army is excellent in so many ways. The whole military is. But the moment you're leaving the army, you're not a priority for them. So, you know, and that's understandable. That's not a criticism. That is that is life. So you, you sort of get brushed to the side and it's up to you now the moment you say you're leaving and you give 12 months notice in the army before you leave. You know, so the moment you give that notice in, the commanding officer or your, you know, your seniors, you're not a priority to them at all because they need to focus on, on, on the next generation who are coming through, who are going to be going on operations, who they need to train up and, you know, not somebody who is thinking about what he's going to be doing when he gets out that front gate and leaves. So for me, I, I, I spent a lot of time and invested a lot of my spare time studying and, and educating myself, knowing that if I didn't do that, I was going back to where I was six years ago again, you know, in, in, in a dead end job back in, in my hometown. How pivotal do you think that six months out to which you refer back in Blackpool, mid kind of midpoint, if you like, in your army army career, how pivotal do you think that was in shaping the life that you enjoy today? I think it was massive. I think it was instrumental. I think without that, I think every soldier that's in the army always thinks, you know, because a lot of people join at 16, 17, straight from school in a similar scenario to me. And everyone is always wondering, what's it like? We call it outside the wire. You know, what's it like outside the wire? What's it like? You know, the grass, is it greener on the other side? And you're always wondering that. It's always in the back of your mind. And you often do see people go out and and actually they're, they're in all the jobs that I wouldn't want to do, you know. And, and you sort of think, uh, maybe it isn't all it's cracked up to be. And maybe sitting in a field, getting soaking wet or spending six months away from your family isn't that bad after all when you see what people, some of them go on to do. Uh, because there were, a, lot of, a lot of the people who leave the army, you end up working twice as hard for half the salary and you don't have that camaraderie. You don't have that, that band of brothers, that trust that people have different... You know, what I found when I, I, I came into civilian life is is people have different standards. And I'm not saying that civilians' are, standards are lower, but they they have a very different attitude towards getting things done. And I, I think something that always stands out to me in the last decade that, that we don't see as much of in civilian life is that team ethos. Whereas in the military, it was always about it doesn't matter who does what, as long as we all get the job done together. I see in, in the private sector, in civilian companies, you don't really see that as much. I, I, it's always about the individual. You know, what if they have to do overtime? Are they going to get paid for it? That's normally the first question. You know, how much extra do I get if I do this? Whereas in the military, it's like, right, it doesn't matter if you're senior or you're junior. We just need to get this job done. And if somebody messes up as well, something I see a lot as well, if somebody makes a mistake, I found in the in the civilian life, people are very quick to expose that mistake. Whereas in the military, we would all gather around and say, you know, let's let's cover up and let's look after him and get, we've got his back. And, and I, I found it, you know, a, a big disparity between between those two. How, how did you find going back to study? Because that in itself, you know, as you say, BA, MA, you apply yourself from an educational perspective in that second stint in the military. But I think, as you mentioned earlier, you you hadn't perhaps applied yourself in 
in the same way whilst through school. How did you, was it easy to make, you know, were you so motivated to kind of think, right, okay, I, I'm going to take some responsibility to not, you know, to, to really, to develop myself and focus on that professional development so that when I do come to lead the second time, I'm able to maybe do other things. That and that's that's quite a leap. How did you find that kind of return to education, if you like? Again, I thought it was incredibly difficult. I didn't enjoy it. Um, I found it really tough. You know, I can remember, I can remember having to what they call it referencing, where you have to reference all your articles. That where you, I, I, I used to blow my mind all that sort of stuff, and you know, and and lots of going to see sort of mentors and and lecturers to even on my weekends I remember traveling up to Leicester University and Coventry University to to go and have a one-to-one with you know the senior lecturers because I didn't understand some of the work that they'd set me and it was if I'm honest I didn't enjoy uh, academia I, I respect it and appreciate its its great value in society and I'd be lying if I said I really enjoyed it I found it incredibly hard work but I also found that it, especially on the master's degree, it opened up my mind to a different way of thinking, you know, being a lot more sort of critical in the way I analyze things. And so, so it, it definitely taught me a lot. But also, I think that I studied in a field that I, I knew and enjoyed. I, my, my studies were in the field of security risk management. It wasn't, as I saw at school, English, math, science, you know, and, and those sort of subjects that didn't really interest me. I was studying security. So, I could apply a lot of my 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 studies to the job I was doing as a soldier, whether that was in intelligence, whether it was in in protection of of, of the camp or patrols in Iraq, or you know, I could I could really uh, the, the context is everything I think in 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 academia, and I was able to use my context of experience to the study and the the qualification, and I think that makes life more enjoyable when you're studying. If you actually study about something that you have a lot of experience in, because you can have a very valid opinion on on uh, you know in debates and arguments if you've actually been there and done that. What what you're talking about? And what was it that drove you to, you know, to to go through it? As you say, it sounds as though from what you described, it was it wasn't an easy experience for you. It wasn't a natural, comfortable experience. But what drove you to succeed? Do you know, I think the fear of failure is really, really big and really prominent for me. I think having left the army, come back in, I didn't want to go to to what I perceived as a failure on my part the first time. I think it's a big driver for a lot of soldiers. You know, when you do internal courses in the military, one of the biggest things that gets you through a lot of situations is you don't want to fail. I think you're, as a soldier, you're a very highly motivated individual who always wants to give 110%. You want to succeed. And you know, I think that self-induced pressure and fear of failure is, is what gets me through a lot of things in life. I think even today on things like adventures, you know, you put your name out there that you're going to do a world record or a world first. You've got to be accountable to your goals and your objectives. Uh, I, I think that's really a big, a big, powerful thing. So you, you study risk management security, as you say, and then, as I understand it, your kind of next chapter, if you like, in your life post the military was, was it maritime security in particular, where you focused your attention? Tell, tell me about, about how you how you arrive to be looking after a, a, a ship on which uh, Somali pirates uh, subsequently board. I mean, that, that in itself is quite a journey. Before we explore that in any length, what was what got you there? Yeah, it was um, it was quite a bizarre set of circumstances. And you know, when I, when I was in the military, I ended up getting injured uh, not not seriously injured, but I got a back injury in my in my day to day sort of work, and I was unfortunate that this particular injury, it, it prohibited me from going on a, on, a, on a course that I needed to get my next promotion. Um, so I was fit enough to, to continue working in the army, but I was 
injured enough to not have the career path that I was on and promote at the, at the speed that I was promoting. So it meant that the army and, and my sort of seniors had to make a decision. And their decision was that Jordan, you've been a good soldier. You've always done what we've asked of you. You've represented the military to a high standard. However, you, you can't pass this certain course because of your back injury. So what that means is we're not going to sack you or medically discharge you. We're going to give you a job in the regiment, but you're not going to promote very fast. It's going to be a long, slow burner. And all your your peer group are going to move past you now quite quickly, which is – and I, I sort of put up with that for about 18 months. And as I saw my friends were getting promoted and moving up the ladder, I found it – quite soul destroying because I knew that, you know, these were people that I worked with, I'd, I'd been on the same path with. And now just because I couldn't complete a particular course uh, on the tank, because I was in a tank cavalry regiment and in a tank, you're sat in a very confined space, you know, really, and you have to lock down for long periods of time. And the doctor said, you know, you, you're going to cause long-term injuries further to your, your back. Uh, so they sort of said, you know, we can put you in a storeman's role, you know, and giving out the weapons and bits and, I just remember thinking, you know, that's not what I've done all my life and that is not what I want to do. I was a soldier and I want to be a soldier. So I came to the conclusion that I, I was probably going to have to leave the army. But luckily, you know, I preempted that with my studies and, and, and was ready equipped to hit civilian life. And I got a phone call one day from an ex-Royal uh, Marine friend of mine. And he said, Jordan, he said, this is sort of 2009, I think. And he said, Jordan, we've I've just landed this job as a sort of project manager and we're protecting ships from pirates off the coast of Yemen and Somalia. And I know that you were thinking about getting out of the army. He said, is there any way you can get out in two weeks' time? And obviously, I said, you know, that's impossible. I'd love to. And he said, if you can get out, I can give you a one-year contract. So I, I I remember, you know, really well. I was driving out of – I was prepping my – because at this stage now, I'm in, I'm in an arms store. I'm the guy who looks after the weapons in the store. I've been sort of, as I said earlier, pushed to the side as a guy who's leaving the army soon, you know, give him a, store, a storeman's role or, a, or whatever. And I remember I, it was really late at night. And it was like midnight and I was finishing my arm store, uh, cleaning the weapons, ready for an inspection the next day. It was a Thursday evening. Do you know when you remember things in life that are real pivotal sort of junctions that change the game of, and, and, and the path of the future? And I was a junior NCO, which is like a corporal. It's, a, you know, it's, it's low down the ranks, if you like, uh, in, in, in terms of the bigger sort of military picture. And I remember driving out of camp that night. And for the, for the previous year before that storeman's job, I'd been given another sort of what I considered at the time a bit of a, an administration role because of my situation, and that was to drive the colonel. So I was the commanding officer's driver, a bit of like a chauffeur, if you like. Um, you know, it wasn't, it, it was certainly, again, a, a long way from being, you know, a, a frontline soldier. I was just driving his car for him. And I remember because I, because I, I drove that car, which I thought at the time was a really dead end job that, that you know, they had to fill and they give it me. I remember thinking, you know what a terrible job that was, but what it what on on reflection, what it allowed me to do was it allowed me to build a relationship with the most senior person in my regiment and the person who was in charge of pretty much all decisions. And I didn't realise that at the time, and I wasn't thinking like that. So anyway, I'm I'm, I'm locking up my arm store, the armory, at, at Thursday night at about midnight. You know, everyone's gone home; it's pitch black. And I'm driving out of camp, and I saw the commanding officer's light on in his office. And I just got this this message from my friend saying, can you leave the army in two weeks? And I thought, you know what? I said, I'm leaving the army. I've been trying to, 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 to get better, to improve my situation. And because I'd been the commanding officer's driver, he also knew that I had, you know, I, he knew he was aware of my studies and how much I'd put into my spare time to try and develop and evolve as a, as a, as a person. So I went up and knocked on the commanding officer's door, which sort of goes against you know, all the protocol, you know, you, as a corporal, you don't just march up and, and ask him if you can leave the army next week. Um, it was a, a huge gamble. And 
I remember, you know, he, he let me in his office and he sort of, you know, give me a bit of a talking to saying this better be good coming up to my office, you know, uh, as a junior NCO on a Thursday evening. And I said to him, I said, Colonel, I said, you know, you know my situation. You know, I've tried to get fitter. I've tried to continue my professional development. But the army, the si- it was basically almost a flaw in the system that, that I could still be in the army, couldn't be medically discharged, but yet couldn't promote. It was a very unique set of circumstances that went to a a legal pursuit because I tried to, not that I tried to sue the army, but I tried to to over get the decision overturned um, because I because I was still able to do so much and we're still very fit. You know, I still do adventures, expeditions at world level today. So it was incredible that I could still do all these things, but I couldn't go on a course. And the colonel knew all this sort of information. So he said to me, I said, I said, I need to, I need to go and I've got a job offer. It's, it's protecting ships from pirates. Uh, I know I'm a soldier, but I need to leave the army in the next two weeks. And he also was aware that I knew I had to give 12 months notice, but he said to me, he said, Jordan, he said, I respect you coming up here right now and having the, having the ball, so to speak, to, to, to step in my office and ask me that question. Cause, and I've watched you for the last year and eight, 18 months trying to get better and trying to improve. You know, you've, you've had the courage to go and fight the system and it's not worked. He said, so I'm, I'm more than happy that you go on leave now because the the initial pirate sort of fighting job, if you like, was it was a two week contract. But if if I did well, it would get I would get a year contract. So he sent me on leave for two weeks, and he said to me, probably against his own sort of rules and regulations, he said, Jordan, he said, don't tell me where you're going. I don't want to know. As far as I'm concerned, and if anyone asks me, you're on leave. You're at home in Blackpool. Um, I don't want to know what you know because I can't condone you going to pick up a weapon and go and protect when you're a soldier in the private sector. It's, it's, it's illegal, I think, in, in fact. Uh, and he did that for me. And, and if he hadn't done that, I would certainly not be here now, you know, I've been on the journey that I've been on because, you know, I, I left the camp that night and then spent the next two weeks off the coast of Somalia, you know, did a good job, got a good report, and then got offered a contract. And I spent the next sort of four or five years doing that job. Uh, and that was all because that, that commanding officer uh, had let me go early because that was where the opportunity was. And, you know, I... I remain friends with that particular uh, commanding officer to this day and and hold him as someone who, you know, through his his power and influence allowed me to go off in a different path. And, and he actually, you know, he, he broke the rules by doing that and was very kind to me. And that experience, if you look at the journey on which that next four or five years ultimately ended up, it ends up in the in the form of a book, an international bestseller, Citadel, the true story of one man's war against the pirates of Somalia. Which is fascinating how you go from that that midnight meeting with the colonel in, in in camp on a Thursday night to an international bestseller. I guess two questions in one. Arguably, never a good premise, but nonetheless, we'll run with it. What was what was the experience through which you'd been with the Somali pirates and the ship? Uh, and at what point did you say this is a book? You know, what was the what was the journey? Yeah, it was. Um, you know, I, again, it was another. I always think you learn so much in life through through traveling and meeting people and doing the job of protecting ships from pirates. For me, when I first got out there, it was like, it was probably what most people listening to this think, you know, do pirates really exist? Is it not, you know, a parrot and a wooden leg and an eye patch? It was a world away from what I'd, I'd ever known, you know, even the concept of of that the pirates were real. Because for me, it was the romance of, of, of you know, the sort of Long John Silver or, or Captain Jack Sparrow that's the romance that I'd always had and the notion of a pirate, you know, over the years. And it was obviously a very real threat at the time. And 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 in 2009, piracy off the coast of Somalia just completely surged where there was not enough security guards to cover the ships that were needed because ships were being hijacked and, and attacked that quickly. So 
there was all these opportunities for ex-military people to, to get involved and, and start offering their services. And the money they were paying in 2009 was incredible for me as a, as a soldier, you know, from Blackpool. I was earning in one day almost what I was earning in a month, you know, in the army. It was it was like pop star wages to me, you know, and I, I was blown away. But also it was a very enjoyable job because, I, you know, we were getting on ships in places like I spent those five years when I wasn't on the ship in the Seychelles, in Dubai, in the Maldives, you know, in Mauritius, all these glamorous parts of the world where because we would have to wait for the next ship to come along and always three or four days waiting would be in one of the the the, the, the sort of regions of the Indian Ocean. Um, so it was it was it was an amazing experience, and you know we had lots of ups and downs. But the the, the particular occasion of of the Citadel was based on a particular job that I did, where we were taking some foreign, uh, some international aid, sorry, into Somalia. We were we were guarding a ship essentially that was bringing the World Food Programme's aid into Mogadishu, which was like rice and grain for the Somali people in in a famine crisis. And depending on which flag the ship has on the back of it. So we, we, that, that sort of means where the ship's registered to, if that makes sense. Every ship in the world has a flag on it and, and the flag uh, that it's carrying means the laws of that land are applicable to that ship because that's where it's registered to that nation. And on this particular uh, occasion, we were registered to a nation that didn't allow the carriage of arms on board. And that was not uncommon. You know, lots of ships didn't allow weapons on, on board because a bit like if you think a vessel is a piece of that country's territory floating around the ocean, so, for example, you know, if if we were allowed British weapons on, uh, sorry, weapons on a British flagship, that would be similar to walking around London with a weapon. You know, you just couldn't do that. It wasn't allowed unless there were special circumstances. And yeah, so we, I was on a ship with some colleagues that was tasked to take the uh, the vessel and the, and its crew and cargo to Mogadishu, and it was unarmed, so there was no weapons on board. So, you know, it was it was always a very high risk mission, and we were also paid, uh, you know, substantially more because of that from the owner of the company but you know to, to, to without ruining the book we went down to uh somalia we we were supposed to be there for a few days a few days became a week and and, and more and we got boarded illegally by pirates and we found ourselves in a situation where armed men were on board our vessel were stuck in what's called the citadel which is like a safe room a panic room if you like and we have no communications to the outside world and i was in charge of security so i had some pretty big decisions to make to to, to get us out of that situation, if you like. But of course, I, I, I can't tell you the rest of the story because that would ruin the book. <laughs> <laughs> but at what, I guess at what point did you think there's a book in there? I mean, it, it sounds uh, a fascinating, albeit fraught, but nonetheless very tense. And I'm sure a, a huge range of emotions are, 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 emotions are running hot. But at what point did you decide to write a book? Well, to be very honest, I never, I never had a, an idea to write a book about it at all. Because to me, what I did was no different than what anyone else at the time was doing out there. It, it was, it was just our job. And I, I was, I, I was just going to say, my sense from everything you've said would have been I, exactly the reaction I would have been expecting you to have said, "I'm doing my job." Yeah, no, exactly, and that's that's how I saw it. You know, for me, there was lots of people out there who had done similar things and been in, you know, worse situations. You know, some of the seafarers didn't get out alive and things like that. And, and some people were in captivity. There's been hostages. So I was just doing my job. And, and to be honest, the biggest motivator was getting home to see my daughter. It wasn't, I, I certainly wasn't any kind of superhero or, or, or trying to be heroic in any way. And I don't see it like that at all, even today. But when I, about six months after I'd finished, you know, within within about a week, it was headline news that, that you know, sort of, 
ex-British soldier saves crew and this sort of big blockbuster news story, which it was it was a bit far-fetched, to be quite honest. You know, it had been sort of the media had put its spin on it and it was a lot more glamorous than what actually happened. But, we, 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 you know, we, we ran with it and it was about six months afterwards, the, the, the Mirror, uh, the newspaper, The Mirror, they have a publishing arm called The Mirror Books and they'd reached out saying, um, you know, we would like to, have you thought about writing up your tales over the last sort of, you know, a couple of years, uh, especially this one particular one, because uh, it was really interesting. And I think at the time, I think the newspaper was the News of the World. They, the Mirror, owned the News of the World. The, the publishing house was Trinity Mirror, and they owned like loads of the newspapers in the UK. And I said, "Oh, I've never thought about writing a book um, about it." To be honest, you know, I didn't think it was that exciting. It was just what we do. And I went for a meeting when I came back off one of the jobs, and I went to Trinity Mirror and. I spoke to them and they said, well, you know, we'll pay you in advance to write this book, this, that, and the other. So I was like really excited thinking, oh, we can, you know, make a few quid here and I'll write this up when I'm on my next ship because you get lots of downtime. And then I spoke to the owner of the company who I was working for and he was like, nope, you're not doing this. This is goes against all the non-disclosure agreements that were in place. The ship owners, our clients won't be happy because there's insurance issues. And there was a minefield of all these legalities that I'd not even thought about or considered quite naively. So I was like, oh, okay, then I had to go back to the mirror quite embarrassingly after sort of agreeing that I would do it, saying, no, unfortunately, I can't because uh, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in the shipping industry and the security industry that won't allow me to do this uh, because, it, you know, of, of the implications on their contracts and this, that, and the other. So about five years later, I was so I was under a non-disclosure for five years from all the stakeholders. So five years later, I got an email after the non-disclosure had expired from the mirror books again and said, Nobody's still ever written a book about piracy or what's gone on in this in this field. Would you like to 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 sort of take that option still? And I I went back to them and out of courtesy I went to uh, the security company. And said this is what I'm going to do. I was no longer sort of working in the sector at that time. I said, but I'm going to write this up now. My non-disclosure expired. Have you got an issue with that? And this particular gentleman, he wasn't even in the industry. And he said, Jordan, go for it. Do what you want. Good luck to you. Um. So I yeah we wrote the book up and we you know I I don't think again the I think the book was really it's a culmination of the same stories that lots of people have it was just that I went and wrote a book about it you know but lots of my colleagues and friends they've had more horrific incidents than me uh, one of my friends who actually has just wrote a book he spent four years in an Indian jail after he was locked away um, on arms charges because the security company that he was working for didn't have the correct license and paperwork for the weapons that the team was carrying uh, he was I actually campaigned for about well for four, for three or four years for his him to get released and he got released as an innocent man but he spent four years in an Indian jail. He's a guy called Nick Dunn with his colleagues who just released a book last last few months called Surviving Hell. Uh, maybe, maybe a future guest I can introduce you to. <laughs> so, let's talk about the expeditions. So as I understand it, October 2019, you become the first person in history to row solo and unsupported across the most dangerous strait of water on the planet, the Bab El Mandeb Strait, which is between the Horn of Africa and Yemen. You've done other, which we'll come on to, other really interesting things. I'm fascinated to, to understand more about them. But at what point did you decide expeditions was to be the future for you? And, and, and what was the trigger? I, I don't think there was a, a, a conscious decision as such. I think for me, um, I went through after I'd been on the on the uh, the ships doing the maritime security for many years. Uh, towards the end of that, I had a, a bit of a mental breakdown, not because of anything from the military or or anything from the the security side of things or working in hostile environments. It was more I came I came home one day to be very honest, and I'd been warned for a long time, probably a year over a year, by my partner at the time that 
I was spending too much time away from home. My priority wasn't my family and I needed to sort it out. And, and you know, being very honest and learning from your mistakes, I, I never took those warnings and came home one day and my partner, had, you know, she'd gone and my daughter who I had a, you know, we'd been in a relationship for over 10 years and had a young daughter at the time. They said, you know, enough was enough. We told you, we've warned you and you never took the notice. And, and I guess I was, you know, I was exposed to a world of, you know, chasing what I thought was important, you know, bigger pay packets, you know, fancy cars, nice watches, bigger houses. I got sucked into this very shallow materialistic world. And I think that was as a result of of, of probably spending a lot of time uh, in places like Dubai, you know, where I was living in an apartment, you know, when I wasn't on the ships and things. And again, if I'm honest, I probably lost touch with my moral compass for a year or two um, of, of what I believe is important in life. And I learned the hard way and it took me probably about the next three or four years to, well, I can't even say I ever got over that because I don't think you ever do lose, you know, when your daughter goes to live in another home with another family, you can never get over that, but you learn to live with it. And most importantly, you, you learn from the mistakes uh, that, that you made. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who says I've, I've got no regrets. I've got tons of regrets, but I, I try over the last few years to not dwell on them, but to learn from them and, and to apply the lessons to my future. Um, so how you know i went into therapy i was diagnosed with severe depression chronic anxiety and then i you know i found it i found life was very incredibly tough you know i was suicidal and 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 really wanted to get out of this world and i started running that i started running uh, as a as a way to sort of manage my mental health and i'm i'm not somebody who loves running even though i'm an adventurer and i go and do expeditions i'm i'm the last person you will see running to a gym to go and get you know work out and things i'm i'm an ordinary guy i love having a pizza at the end of the day and a beer as much as I love going for a credible adventure. You know, I'm not, I'm not an athlete. I'm not somebody who's a finely tuned athlete who's dedicated my life to fitness and nutrition or anything like that. But I found that running was a good escapism for me, running on my own uh, through the woods, you know, places around Wiltshire, Hampshire. And I started to really feel the benefits on my mental health of just being in the outdoors. And I think, you know, even though I was taking medication and things, I, I think the best medication that I was, I was sort of a, um, embracing was the outdoors and and exercise and I just started took that to the next level eventually I, I needed I think after the military I one of the big things you lose after the military is a sense of purpose and pride you know even today I, I'm a uh, one of the national ambassadors for the army cadet force which means I get to put on a uniform now and again and there's nothing I, I love putting back on my uniform even though it's only for the cadets a, a, a decade later I love remembrance day where I put my medals on for once a year you know I you, you really feel that sense of pride again. And I think that's what you really lose after the military, you know, going into a normal job or the normal civilian life, you you lose all those sort of things. And it's quite ironic because when you're in the military, you know, polishing your medals and your boots is something that's a real pain in the backside. You know, it's something that you can't be bothered doing and you're like, oh, it's a real chore. But when you get out, people laugh at me because I've got the best polished boots on parade on Remembrance Day now because I spend a week before and polishing them, you know. Uh, so there's a real irony there, but... I think for me, adventure uh, come from wanting to improve my mental health and well-being, and it's just progressed and evolved from there. And and then when I realised that you could do adventures that have a solid purpose and use adventure to actually have a positive impact on other people's lives, it, you know, it becomes it becomes more than an adventure. It, it, you know, you, you can change. I don't want to say you can change the world, but you can change the world for some people by using adventure for a force of good. And and was there or was there was there an individual a, a, a 
someone you looked to that provided that inspiration to which you thought, you know what, expeditions, are, are, you know, you're, you're, you're obviously getting, you're outside, you're running, you're, that physicality, if you like, that you're enjoying is helping you on your, on your journey and your battle with, with mental health. But was there a kind of a point at which or a person you looked to, you thought that's who, you know, that's who I aspire to be. That's what I want to be able to achieve as a consequence of the expeditions on which I'll embark. I don't think so. I think, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by lots of people, but most of the people that if I, if, if I'm honest, the, the most of the people that inspire me aren't people that we would know, you know, they're, they're not people who, who are household names or anything. Um, you know, people that are the unsung heroes that are, that are doing it because they want to do it and they want to make a difference are, are the people that, you know, the cadet force, adult volunteers, you know, the, as I say, the NHS, people who are dedicating their time to help others without any material wealth or, or gain or return from it. They're the people that inspire me to, to want to do more. I think for me, it's, it's not about what I'm doing. It's about why I'm doing it. And I think some of these expeditions, you know, a lot of people think they're, 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 they're wacky, they're weird, they're wonderful, they're crazy. Well, that's only because they have to be to, to attract the kind of donors and sponsors to have a huge impact on the lives that I'm trying to change. You know, if I if I just wanted to do a, a, a normal sort of thing, like I'm trying to think a good way to put it, you know, in this world today, lots of people have run a marathon for charity. Lots of people have done a skydive, climbed a mountain, uh, done a sponsored walk or whatever it might be. And that's amazing. And I take my hat off to anyone who's going to try and do any sort of charity fundraising event. I think it's amazing. It's brilliant. But if you want to take that from from a bit of fun and, and doing a little bit of good for, for some people into the tens, the hundreds of thousands, the millions, then you have to do something quite substantial. You have to build campaigns. You need people supporting your PR, your social uh, media. You know, you, you need to attract media attention. You need to get it on the news not because you want to be famous, but because if you if you get it onto the media and the news, more people know about it, which means more people are going to donate and you can have a bigger impact. And, you know, so for me, for example, I've been trying to build a school for the last few years on the Horn of Africa, and that's cost, you know, probably 300,000 plus uh, US dollars. So me going for a 5K sponsored run isn't going to cut it as much as that would be great because that would be amazing if it would because I would love nothing more than just to go down the local park and not have to spend a year planning an incredible expedition. But if you want to attract masses of, of donations and, and exposure, you have to take bigger risks and you have to do things sometimes that haven't been done or certainly create campaigns that are engage the public in a way that perhaps haven't before. And I, I've worked out sort of through experience, there's a cycle and, you know, it, the cycle is that, you know, the weird, wonderful and wacky your, your event is, the more media coverage you're going to get, which means more sponsors and donors you're going to get. And that cycle just keeps turning. And the challenge for me is that people always want something bigger the next time you do it. They always want something more riskier or more dangerous. And that's where you've got to try and find the balance somewhere, I think. So where do you start? So you sat, I don't know, you sat having a cup of tea one morning, a cup of coffee, you know, at the breakfast table. I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to embark on this expedition. If we go back to that, that first, the first person in history to row solo unsupported across the most dangerous strait of water in the world. There are, there are several others I want to come on and, and, and talk about, but what's the journey from, kind of nub of an idea to finding yourself in a, a kayak or a, you know rowing across uh, rowing across water i mean what's it, that's a huge undertaking but i would have no idea as i suspect would many listening to this as to how you make that happen what's the journey i don't think there's a blueprint i think it's about you know will and desire i think it's about utilizing everything you know all your resources your networks 
And I think that's part of the fun of it. I think that all that bringing it together is actually a huge factor in in, in the excitement and the build up and and the campaign and things. I, you know, I, I I just think if you've got a dream, you've got a goal, you've got a desire. You don't have to know how you how you're going to do it. You've just got to start. You've got to start somewhere. You know, start today and and start building. And and you work the rest out as you're going along. You know, I don't have all the answers. On, on how these things have done. And don't get me wrong, you will come up across obstacles. You will come across challenges. Uh, people will let you down along the way. Sponsors will drop off and you'll there'll be a whole minefield of different challenges that you're going to come across. But the only way you're ever going to be able to do this or know if you can is by starting, starting today and, and going for it. Speak to people who've done it before. Speak to other adventurers. Speak to people in the media. I think relationships are a huge thing. You know, we uh, we, we have this terrible trait as humans where, we only go to people when we want something. It's it's a terrible, horrible trait that humans have. And I've always tried to focus on what I call keep the network alive. Uh, I, I always try to help people where I can because life's very reciprocal. If you if you go out your way to help people, you don't have to worry about what you're going to get because life takes care of itself. And it's something that I've definitely learned in the last five years. I don't think I've been lucky. I think I work really hard and opportunities uh, appear and come in and land in my lap sometimes. But you know, if I if I meet someone at a conference, it's not a stroke of luck. It's because I've choose to get off my bum and travel halfway across the country to go to that conference and buy a ticket and and start networking and speaking to people. You know, if 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 someone's heard my story from a podcast like 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 this one, it's because I've took the time to see, talk to you and tell my story. And all those little going the extra miles, they all add up. And before you know it, you know, opportunities are there. I, Opportunities are everywhere in life, but sometimes you've just got to be a little bit savvy, you know, and and, and a little bit sort of open minded to, to spot them and, and also connect the dots and, and and what have you, because the opportunities aren't always crystal clear right in front of you, you know, with a hand up saying I'm an opportunity. Come and get me. You have to make the opportunity by using all the different pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, that that's the same with fundraising. You know, how do you be more creative and and, and, and a bigger fundraiser than the next person? Look at, you know, God bless his soul, Sir Captain Tom. You know, what he did was absolutely extraordinary, but on the face of it, it was so simple. You know, he went for a walk around his garden, yet raised 30 to 40 million. But, you know, the, the, the profile of him as a veteran, as, you know, approaching his 100th birthday, so many ingredients were perfect for the time in the coronavirus pandemic that we needed a bit of inspiration. We needed a bit of hope. And I guess a bit like business, sometimes timing is everything. You know, I've done lots of campaigns that you won't hear about that weren't that successful and didn't raise a lot of money. But we're always, I think every fundraiser out there is looking for that magical ingredient that's going to, you know, uh, catapult them to making and raising lots of funds for a great cause. It's, it's, uh, but, but that's, that's the mystery of it all. We're all trying to do that. Every fundraiser, I think. So whether it's, whether it's uh, running dangerously, which was, um, you ran through Afghanistan, Iraq and Somalia, I think Barefoot Warrior, which involved climbing Mount Kilimanjaro barefoot. Clearly there were several, there were more. Of the expeditions that you've undertaken, you've undergone, which was the one that stands out for you as, as kind of emotionally, physically the toughest to get through? I think at the time, obviously, they all feel like they're the toughest and the most emotional at the time. But I think definitely the, the, the most recent one, the Great British Paddle, which was it was a world first attempt to be the first person to stand up paddleboard around Great Britain. And this is 149 days and 2,377 kilometers or something, which is a Guinness world record for, for which you are now the, the, the holder. Well, it was, it was my, my mission was to paddle around Great Britain, but we got, you know, sort of let just under three quarters of the way, which 
the, the record we were going for was to paddle around Great Britain, but we, we only got three quarters because of the, the COVID pandemic. The, the Scottish government stopped us, um, but we, we did paddle further and longer than anyone else, although that wasn't our, our objective, if you like. But most importantly um, was that we raised, you know, just short of £100,000 for charity. And so, but in terms of exhaustion, physically, mentally, psychologically, Perhaps not physically. I don't think it was physically, even though it was the mo- it was the longest. It wasn't the physically most demanding, but definitely was the most mentally demanding. You know, to to to, to paddle on the water for for the best part of five months, you know, daily, and not know when you was going to get to the end was was psychologically dr- uh, draining uh, on on so many levels. And I think just how enduring it was. You know, normally a lot of these things that I do, they take a few days a day, a few days a week or whatever, not five months of of relentless, you know, battling the waves in all conditions in all different countries. Um, so it's, it's it's quite strange because even though it wasn't, we didn't achieve our objective of getting round Great Britain, we did achieve a bigger objective for me, which was to build, finish building a school on the Horn of Africa. And that's what's interesting about that is people measure success in different ways. You know, in the in the social media world, people people tell me I, I, I you know I lots of the of the of the detractors and the naysayers would say that I failed that and did say oh you you failed it even though that I paddled for as long as I could and was stopped by the government because of rules and regulations. You know, people will have a pop from their armchair behind their screen saying, well, you failed because you didn't get to the end. Uh, whereas you know, for me and the majority of people, we inspired a nation. We will build a school. And we raised an incredible amount of money, and we paddled further than anyone else has before. Uh, so it's you know it's interesting, uh, and that's why I say that there will always be critics, you know. But as I think Theodore Roosevelt once said, it's not the critic that counts, you know, unless they're alongside you on that paddle board taking on the waves every day. Well, actually, they don't deserve to be in your headspace or even have the right to an opinion. <laughs> and so, so what drives you? As you say to your point, when you're you know the, the waves, it's unrelenting. You're unsure as to what the end date might be. Yeah, every day you've got to get up, you've got to get on the board, you've got to paddle, you've got to, you know, the, the weather conditions, are, all of the things you've described, what drives you in that situation or what drives you generally? Well, the reason why we're doing it, you know, I, I made a promise to to build a school to, you know, a group of young children and I've kept that. And I, I think if you make a promise to anyone in life, you should always keep it. But if you, you know, if you make a promise to a child in a war zone and a conflict zone, um, you know, it's not something that I took lightly. Uh, you know, I probably bit off more than I can chew making that promise a few years ago. But and it's been a huge amount of stress to try and build a school. But we we've nearly finished the school, so I think it's about remembering your why. You know, when times get tough, when you're getting in the in the water that's that's sub zero off the west coast of Scotland at three in the morning when it's pitch black and there's no moonlight, and you're thinking, what the hell am I doing here right now? You know, you remember quite quickly that actually you know, for a little bit of, of effort and a little bit of pain and a little bit of, of endurance, you're going to do something that's going to last a lifetime and leave a legacy for, for generations to come and inspire so many people. So, you know, I I, I, I think, um, you know, one of your previous guests, Paula Reed, she was working with me on that particular project, The Adventure Psychologist. And one of the things that, that she taught me and I really embraced and, and sort of honed in on was the ability to reframe negative thoughts into positive or neutral ones by simply just taking my cap off and looking at it from a different perspective. And I was able to to use that certainly when it got really tough in off Scotland and the north of Scotland when paddle windows were few and far between and weather was always against us. 
you know, I had a real sense of gratitude for the fact that actually most of the world's in lockdown and I'm still on an adventure. And, and you know, I, so actually I was very fortunate. It wasn't a hardship. I was still having this incredible adventure while most people were locked away in their homes. So for me, I, I tried never to think of it as a hardship or, or, or a battle or a pain barrier that I had to sort of keep fighting. It was more the pressure that was on me was a real privilege and I was honoured to be in that position. So what does success mean to you? Success to me is the biggest impact on as many people's lives as possible uh, for the greater good. Interesting. So what about away from uh, expeditions? What do you, do you unwind? I was going to say, what do you do to unwind? What is that? What does a relaxed Jordan Wiley look like? But uh, do you unwind? And if so, what might that look like for you? I, I don't, I don't think I unwind in the traditional sense. I think for me, you know, doing this is my way of unwinding. It's it's a bit it's a bit bizarre. It's a bit strange and perhaps a little bit backwards in some ways. But for me, having something to work towards, having a project to be you know to to be building. You know, like now I'm looking at we've got the North Pole, we've got Antarctica later in the year, lots of other little sort of bucket list expeditions for fundraising that I've got uh, working on in the background. But for for me, spending time with my daughter, my family is is, is the most important thing. I, I I would always say that my daughter is my greatest achievement in life. You know, regardless of you know records and and will first things like that, that they're not really that important. They're important for fundraising to get the media hook, but to be honest, they're not important to me personally. You know, they're just good for gaining opportunities. You know, sometimes you need to put a, a world record or a world first on something to to attract the attention you need for the for, for whatever the cause is, but they're not important in the big scheme of things. Family, that's what's important, you know, uh, making a difference in the world, trying to inspire young people, my work with the cadets, talking to people, ho- hoping people can learn from my experiences. You know, they're the things that I, I try to do. Try and do things that I enjoy as well. You know, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, in that sort of 2009, 2015, 16, I spent a lot of time living a very uh, luxurious, glamorous style life, but very unhappy life at the same time. You know, I live a, a much more humble life now. I earn a lot less money, but I am a much happier person and much more fulfilled in my life than than I was then. So, looking back, what advice would you give? I was I would ordinarily say twenty one year old Jordan, but perhaps even sixteen year old Jordan, with the benefit of hindsight, we go back to school on that first trip in the army. But let, let's go with twenty one. What, what advice would you give twenty one year old Jordan? I think the the most important thing is that. I think your attitude is absolutely everything in life. I think you can be a victim or you can take victory in any situation. You know, you, you, your attitude will define how you respond, how you react, how you experience day-to-day life, whatever it is. You know, even on the bad days, how you respond to that and react to that will dictate your your level of internal happiness. I think only things you should ever worry about is things that you can control. I think it's quite quite basic, simple advice, but something that if you can really understand is is really practical as you move through life. You know, you control the controllables. You, you don't worry and stress about things that you can do nothing about because it will do you no good and the situation will not change. I think, you know, don't worry about other people's thoughts and feelings that, that don't matter to you as much. I think, you know, you, you you have to start with yourself and look after yourself. You know, you, you have to you have to be happy and, 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 and make sure you're happy before you try and start making the rest of the world happy. Otherwise, it, it can become quite detrimental to your own mental health. I think don't ever lose sight of your values. You know, remember what you stand for, even if you have to stand alone sometimes uh, because of what you stand for. I think, you know, that's important to, to to be true to who you are and build relationships everywhere you go. You know, that's that's one of the great currencies, I think, of life, the ability to to to, to build relationships. You know, you never know who you're going to meet. 
you know, embrace new people regardless of their backgrounds, their cultures, uh, treat everyone with respect. Um, again, things like manners go a long way. And, you know, and again, they don't cost anything. Absolutely. So, so what next or what's next for you? What's the next expedition? What's the next, the next plan? Well, I was doing a, um, before I started my paddle, I was doing, uh, what I called running dangerously, the polar edition. And this was a challenge to run 10 marathons in the 10 coldest places on earth. And in January, 2020, I went to Siberia in Russia for the ice race. Then I went to Yukon, Canada, Alaska, USA, and Iceland. And I was on marathon number five of the 10 on my way to the North Pole, but COVID came and canceled the world. So I've still got to go back and do the remaining six marathons, which will start in December uh, with Antarctica. So I'm going to go to the end of the earth to run a marathon in Antarctica in December uh, this year, if, if COVID if COVID allows us, which hopefully it will by then. And then I'll go back to the North Pole in April again, which is quite exciting because that's been a big one for me on my bucket list to to the North Pole, especially to, to, to be able to go to a part of the world and run a marathon on where there's no land. It's just an ice sheet that's floating uh, and I'm going to run 10 laps around a 4.2 kilometre iceberg is is amazing. You know, what an incredible experience is, is going to be. <laughs> Fantastic. So where can people find information about uh, about the uh, the ice run? Yeah, I think uh, follow my social media. Um, my handle is at Mr. Jordan Wiley across all platforms. I spend um, Facebook and Instagram. I, I don't do too much on Twitter these days. I Again, I think it can be quite toxic, some of these platforms. Um, and my website is jordanwiley.org. And yeah, if you know any support is always welcomed. Um, you know, thank you to anyone who has supported in the past and and hopefully they can take some, you know, a little bit of inspiration or, or, or some ideas from what I'm doing. Well, you, you, I mean, we're the risk of sounding somewhat trite, but nonetheless, I'm going to acknowledge it. You, you've raised more than a million for charity and the world is very lucky that we have people like you in it doing such wonderful things for such wonderful causes. Which are the charities are you supporting currently? Well, thank you for your very kind words. At the moment, I'm um, I'm supporting several charities, uh, which I'm a, a patron, trustee, ambassador for. One is the Frontline Children. They specialise in helping children in war and conflict zones uh, access education. Uh, one is the Able Foundation, which is a very small charity uh, for a local boy who suffers from uh, mitochondrial disease, a life-limiting disease. He's a local boy in my in my town, and also epilepsy action. I'm an epileptic. I was diagnosed with epilepsy late on in life, uh, so we try to uh, raise awareness for them as well. And also my regimental museum. We try to help um, the King's Royal Hussars sort of trust. We try to help injured service uh, men and women from our unit. So they're the four sort of charities close to my heart. But again, if I can ever help my help any charities using my profile whether it's a good look message or a retweet a share or whatever you know I'm, i always try and help where i can fantastic so, so what does the future hold what does the future look like for jordan wiley i think um you know plenty more adventures um for me plenty more adventures plenty more time with the family my daughter's growing up now she's she'll be 12 this year so i can't wait till she's you know probably you know 15 16 17 because she'll probably soon be able to come on some of these you know a bit more challenging adventures so we've got i work on a tv show called hunted uh, on channel four i'm one of the hunters um i've done three or four series of that and we've got two more series to film this year so uh, back end of this year covid dependent again we will film two more series of channel four's hunted and celebrity hunted which will hopefully come out next year uh, which is great fun so yeah quite quite a lot going on still but um you know just take every day as it comes don't plan too far ahead and, and enjoy the ride i think Fantastic. Jordan Wiley, it's been a privilege to have you on as my guest on the Extrology podcast today. I really appreciate your time, your candor, 
and your insight. Uh, you've raised some fabulous points. Talk about some really crucial issues that uh, you know had time permitted i think we we know uh, perhaps another time maybe we can go into some real depth issues such as as mental health and and so many of the challenges that are facing the world that you do an enormous amount to try and uh, to try and help and contribute to so i uh, really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you i wish you every success in uh, future expeditions i wish you every success in your upcoming ice adventures and all the other things you've got going on and uh, appreciate, as I say, many thanks for you coming on as my guest today. Oh, it's a real pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for having me and, and keep up the great work of, of sharing uh, inspirational stories. I've loved listening to some of the other guests and uh, definitely take a lot of inspiration myself. So keep doing what you do and it's great stuff. Thanks, Jordan. Great stuff. Thanks a lot. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.